Good morning. Good morning. It looks like I'm waving at Aaron, which I am, and Ben, which I am, but I'm also waving at all people everywhere through this lovely little camera we have here. <coughs> uh, welcome to Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. Uh, for those of you who are newer um, to our center and our practice, I welcome you. Um, this is a um, Zen Buddhist uh, center in the Soto tradition, and so I'll be talking this morning uh, about archaeology. <laughs> in only the loosest possible terms. Um, actually, what I would like to talk about is something that Guy Gibbons said. Um, a lot of you know the name Guy Gibbons, some of you do not know the name um, Guy Gibbons, but Guy was a senior teacher here. He was a senior priest at MZMC for many, many years. Um, somebody I got to know um, and learn from and practice with for a long period of time. Um, Guy died on January 28th of 2020, so right in the midst of the pandemic, and we were unable to gather. Um, and uh, Mark has passing for quite a long time. We had to wait quite a long time in order to do that. And um, so he's been on my mind um, since then, of course, because when we lose somebody, they leave kind of a wall that's exactly the size and shape of their presence was, right? We just have a, um, an intimacy with their, with their life <clears throat> and, of course, with their death. So he's been kind of rolling around in the back of my heart for a long time, and I've had his picture on my altar and all that kind of stuff. But we had uh, a lovely memorial uh, for him across the lake um, here. And one of the things that I learned, I learned a lot, actually, about guy at the memorial, um, a very unique person who knew a great deal about a great many things. I only knew him here, so I only knew, like, guy given the Zen priest. I only knew that kind of part of him. Um, but I got to learn a bunch more about him at, um, at the memorial. And so that's what I want to talk about today, is what's on your program and um, what I will read aloud for those of you who are watching at home. is something that I heard him say, that I heard um, one of his colleagues and friends say, oh, yeah, guy said this, and it really, it really moved me. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, I'll start by though saying that um, on a personal level, because the rest of the talk is kind of impersonal, but on a personal level, um, I always experienced guys being very kind. He was always very kind to me, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and I always felt just a, just a little bit odd, um, probably, when I was around him. And um, that doesn't really strike me as unusual. I feel a little odd around most people most of the time. So it didn't really stand out to me. I didn't give it much thought. And um, I realized he and I are wildly different human beings um, in uh, many, many ways. But I always felt a kind of a kinship with Guy because um, I made an assumption that I didn't know I had made. But I made an assumption about him, uh, which may be true, may not be true. But I assumed that we both had a kind of similar sort of starting point in our perception 
of you know the great universe. Um, sometimes I would just see kind of a look in his eye that would make me think, oh, um, we're both aware that this is a grand marvel beyond all of our possible concepts and conceptions and that this all is something that we're amazed to be part of. Does that make sense in a weird way? Just that sort of look you sometimes see in somebody's eyes goes, oh, you sort of see it too, don't you? But um, I think the kinship came that I felt kind of came from the sense that um, life has always felt like a bit of a strange fit for me. It's a great marvel and it's a miracle beyond imagining and inextricably the thing that I call me as part of it. And at the same time, it feels like an awkward fit. Not always, but oftentimes. I hear that from a lot of people that I get a chance to spend time with. Like, I sometimes feel like I kind of don't quite fit. I'm like, yeah, I know that feeling. Um, and so the role of person has always been one that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what i got to do today. Oh, 16 more hours of that. <laughs> Whatever that is. And I've always... Um, kind of just deeply inside thought, oh yeah, this is just a kind of a bumbling through that I do. I don't have a choice. You gotta, you've got to play the role of person. And so you bumble and do your imperfect best, fitting into this thing called the human. Um, and I think that was why I felt close to Guy. I thought, oh, we're alike in that way. Kind of, there's just a certain kind of uh, sort of sincerely thumping awkwardness <laughs> about the way we both maneuver through our lives. <clears throat> so perhaps that's all projection, but I guess the reason I'm mentioning it is because it softened my heart toward him. I went, I know this. I know this, I know part of this man's heart because I feel like I share it. I'm amazed and grateful to be part of this great thing at the same time. Yeah. Being a person is not an easy thing. So, um, let me shift gears here. At the memorial, um, I'm pointing this way for those of you at home and on the road. I'm pointing this way because the um, memorial service was on the other side of the lake at a very beautiful, in a very beautiful space. We weren't able to use uh, MZMC because we were still under construction here, right? All this new uh, space we're in this morning is still being, still, still being created for us. So. Um, one of his colleagues, one of Guy's colleagues at the University of Minnesota Archaeology Department quoted something that he said. And he was talking about only knowing Guy in an archaeological setting, in an archaeological capacity. And what he said is what is on your program and what I will offer to you at home. He said, um, if you don't make public what you find, it's tantamount to looting. And of course, he was talking about archaeology, find stuff. Right? If you don't make public what you find, it's tantamount to looting. And I'm sitting there in the memorial service, you know, we've chanted the Heart Sutra, and I'm wearing the clothing that I'm wearing now. I'm sitting with a bunch of Zen people, and this whole other part of Guy's life is presenting itself up there. People who knew nothing about Zen Buddhism, or that, that just wasn't a thing. They just talked about what an amazing professor he was, and how he taught the spirit of archaeology. And for whatever reason, that line hit me. I don't know why it hit me, but I wrote it down immediately on the side of my notes, which happened to be on the side of the Heart Sutra, because they gave a you know, cheat sheet out to everybody. You're going to 
want to chant along to this thing, it's not going to make any sense to you. All you Zen people in the back, you've memorized it, but it doesn't make sense to you either. Chant along. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote it down immediately so I know I got the quote right. If you don't make public what you find, it's tantamount to looting. And my thought as we were sitting there was, that is true and it's not just about archaeology. That's true about everything. That is a true thing about everything. So, I know nothing about archaeology. I, I don't know the first thing, other than just the stuff that we all pick up from. Oh, they use scrapers and brushes and they dig and they set stuff out, and it's probably really boring in real life. And if you're lucky, you're chased by Nazis and already archaeological <laughs> artifacts of mystical power, and then somebody says, That's really not. So, oh, it's so cool. So, I know nothing. That shows exactly how much I know. But what I learned from that quote is archaeology isn't finders keepers that you are looking for something, but you're looking on behalf of everybody. And that's a very different way of looking. And that's what struck me about this. It's like, oh, he's talking about the reason that you dig. He's talking about the spirit of the inquiry. I get it. I kind of get that. Or at least I'm invited into a larger space of knowing because it's not done with what Katagiri Roshi, our founder, said or called a gaining idea. You do not get to keep what you find. You do, though, have to care for it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's a really interesting line to walk, isn't it? You don't get to keep it, it's not yours. But you do have to care for it very, very, very importantly. And Katagiri Roshi, of course, was talking about Sasan. He was talking about the thing that those of us in this room just spent 40 minutes doing, some of you at home spent time doing that, some of you do it again later today and tomorrow. It's not a gaining idea, but there's a sense that what's being found and what's being discovered and what's being unearthed and what's being literally brought into the light is to be cared for. Archaeology is about discovery, and discovery is about expanding and including and the experience of new relationship, a new landscape, a new vista. Does all that sound right? As I say it, you're like, oh, I'm looking to make the world just a little bigger. It's going to include now something that it didn't include a little while ago because I was able to bring it up. Does that sort of sound right? Again, I don't know about archaeology. I would love it if Guy were right here. Because then he could say, you know, <laughs> he'd say something. But it does just instinctively make sense to me. The idea is to discover something, and to discover is to make the world bigger. I've just included something. The world just got bigger because now when we know something we didn't know before. We have in our awareness something that wasn't in our awareness before. That's kind of all it means. The world just got a little bit bigger because we found the thing, and now we know a little bit more. Even if we know less, we now know that what we knew before wasn't right. Like, it's expansion, it's expansion, it's expansion. We just got a little bigger. We brought something into the light a new idea, a new person, a new part of ourselves to bring into the light of awareness. But the thing that really stayed with me about his sentence was that like the way that that relationship unfolds, the way that I do the finding and the holding is really important. I think for whatever reason I've heard the phrase gaining idea sit without a gaining idea. Don't do zazen with a gaining idea for 30 years. That's what that first 
generation of Zen teachers said a lot. They said that a lot. It's not about you. Your Zazen is none of your business, as Katagiri said. You're not here to get something. There's not a you that get something anyway, so quit trying to think you're gonna, right? And I kind of get it, and I kind of get it, and I kind of get it, but after, after Guy's line, I went, oh, I really do get it. I mean, at least in theory, an archeologist isn't digging on behalf of themselves, they're digging on behalf of all of us, because what they find is gonna end up in the museum for everyone. Like, does that kind of make sense, the service that they're providing? So what if I saw my Zazen in that very same way? And what if, what if when something were to emerge in my awareness, that I would immediately feel, I want to be in loving relationship with this thing that I have found because what I have found is precious. And because I have found it, the world just got a little larger. And so the way that I treat this thing is really important. That's why I called this talk, oh, thank you, how we dig is everything. Not how big or how deep or how fast or how efficiently, but the spirit with which it is done. And I went, there's the gaining idea. There's what Katagiri was talking about. So, bringing something into the light of loving relationship, loving kindness, isn't the goal of everything loving relationship. Maybe try to find a little part of your life and then ask yourself, what is that about? What is it connected to? And what is that about? And what is that connected to? And what is that about? And what's underneath that? And see if you can follow a trail. This is a rhetorical question I'm asking. Some part of me goes, yeah, that's actually it. It frequently doesn't manifest that way because of my own karma, because of my own log jams, because of my own pain. But I'm like, I think that's actually the point of kind of everything. Like that's breakfast, and that's coming across town, that's me sitting here, that's paper, that's... Yeah, actually, the Metta Sutra is kind of right. That's sort of it. Isn't loving relationship the goal of everything? I think I can see that because if I trace the breadcrumb trail of my desires, my individual desires, if I actually follow them back or down, I can go, oh, it, it actually longs to reach everything. That's what it wants. It wants everything. Like, oh, I'm hungry. I want a Danish. Okay, underneath that is, I want to support this body and stay alive. And under that is, just, you know, to continue to support life in human form. And under that is, consciousness that wants to know itself. And under that is, oh, you want to remember that you're everything. It's loving relationship, Meta Sutra, right? Right. Oh yeah. Love becomes the measure of everything. So Guy, it feels to me, in this in this lovely line, is talking to us about our shared responsibility to the truth. Because he's talking to us about our shared responsibility to relationship. He's talking about doing the practice of archaeology, which is the study, the research, the guessing, the intuitions. Does that sound like Zen to you? It just does to me. I'm like, oh yeah, we get together and we study sutras, right? We study books, we study Hanshan, we study Dogen, we study... Right? Don't we? We do research. 
There's some guessing, there's some intuition. What is the moot koan really about? Hmm. This organ says this, and this organ says this. This organ down here says something else. There's a lot of intuition in Zen. There's a lot of guessing, a lot of guessing, a lot of guessing, and then trial and error, and trial and error. I mean, it does sort of have a try it on and see kind of feeling. But all of that to me feels like it's following a spirit of wanting to expand. I want to get bigger. Consciousness wants to get bigger. Awareness wants to get bigger. It wants to include. And the spirit of that feels really important to me. The include, the include, the expand. So what is an archaeologist's heart? What is a Zen student's heart? What is an awake human heart? How it is done is everything. How we live is everything. If what I'm saying is sort of strange to you, um, it's probably because I'm saying it strangely, but also because for those of us who have been around Zen a long time, we know that this tradition goes far out of its way to erase the line between formal Zen practice and life. It just really tries hard. Does that sound fair to you? Like it really tries hard to say, please don't draw a line there. I promise there isn't a line there. And so stuff like, wow, how that person treats their teacup matters, like that's a thing. You really want to find a good teacher, watch them put on their shoes, right? Because that's the thing. How they live is everything. How they treat their teacup, how they treat their shoes, how they pet their dog, how they, how they buy the Danish they want for breakfast. That's it, that's everything. That's gonna show you everything. How you do everything. We have that saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. I love that. It's kind of, wow, it's a high bar. <laughs> But it's also like, yeah, I get it. You're never off duty. You're never off the hook. What I love about that is, no, it's just a way of saying every single moment matters. You don't get to skip over the ones you imagine are unimportant to get to the really important Zen one. I'm going to form my mudra so perfectly. And then half an hour later, you're driving through traffic like somebody who's crazy. Well, what, why? Why do you imagine that the traffic is less important than your mudra or the mudra is more important? Come on, man, this is your life. Pay attention. How you dig is everything. How you pay attention is everything. And the how to me seems to matter so much more than the way that that shovel is held, the spirit in which it's held, is what feels like it matters to me. I can learn technique -y stuff later. That stuff can be taught. But the spirit can't. That's why we say Zen can't be taught. It can only be caught. Right? Zen can be caught, not taught. There's a spirit there. I don't have to hold my teacup the same way my teacher did. He was left-handed. Can you imagine such a thing? <laughs> he still is left-handed. <laughs> Hi, Tim. How a Zen student sits Zazen is the same as how a good student of archaeology practices archaeology. What an assertion. I'm going to say it anyway, even though I don't know anything about archaeology. Is it what I'm going to get? What am I going to get? Or is it, what am I going to discover? Those feel to me like two different planets. What am I going to get today? I'm going to do a half an hour meditation. What am I going to get? That's a very common thought. If that has occurred to you, you do not get to shame yourself for having that thought. I've had that thought, I promise, more times than I can count. It's very, very, very typical to have an acquisitive relationship with our practice. Maybe if I practice Zen for 10 years, I'll be really, really calm. All right, I'll give you 10 years in exchange for X amount of calm. What am I going to get, right? Of course we think this way. 
Of course, we think this way is how we live all of our lives. I'm not going to get my Danish unless I give you five bucks. That's the deal. I'll give you the five bucks, but I want that Danish. Right? So I'll give you 45 minutes sitting here on a black cushion, but I'm going to get something. Give me some insight. Give me some something. So we don't need to shame ourselves for that. But we do need to recognize, oh, yeah, I get that. I know what that is. I know what that is. And so now that I see that, there I am on the cushion. Oh, I'm wanting something. I'm asking for something. Of course. Oh, I see. Can you feel how that comes from a suffering place in you? If you can't, that's okay. But I would encourage you to see that there's going to be a connection there. We don't long for something unless we think we lack it. So come on, dig down. Go, wait, what is that about? Is there part of me that's, I don't long for peace unless I'm afflicted. So, oh, I've got affliction. <coughs> ah, I've just discovered something. Do you feel it? Because I stopped trying to get, I discovered. That's a very different relationship. It's a hugely different relationship. What am I going to get versus what are we going to discover? And the digging. The boxes of tools, the big motions, the small shovels, the hand trowels, the tiny bristles made of horsehair, the dirty hands, the cracked and sore fingers. Joko Beck, the famous American Zen teacher, famous for me anyway, said, our, pra our practice must be careful, meticulous, and patient. We must face everything. I've quoted that line lots of times sitting in this seat because I just love that line. Doesn't that feel like archaeology? Our practice must be careful, meticulous, and patient. We must face everything. Oh, it gives me shivers. Thank you, Joko. Whew. It's a good thing I didn't know that 30 years ago. I would never walk in this door. <laughs> How we dig is everything. We can all dig for gain. We usually do, myself included. We are invited to dig instead because we care about digging. We are invited to fall in love with digging, just digging as a thing, digging as an activity in and of itself. That's starting to feel more like Sazen to me, right? That's really quoting the masters. Why do you sit? Just to sit. It's useless. It's purposeless. It will give you nothing. Come and do it. And be on time. And don't squirm. I mean, that really does sound like don't expect anything. Please don't expect anything. You'll discover a lot, but oh my God, don't, don't, don't. Please don't ruin it for yourself, right? Fall in love with this activity as an activity. That's it. Boom. There's the tiger entering the mountain. There's the dragon entering the water. We are invited to fall in love with it because it expresses a desire for relationship. And that is what we are. I believe we are relationship, and I believe we are desire for relationship. This is good desire. The part of us that recognizes, I am in relationship already. How can I purify that? How can I make it loving? At root, Buddhism teaches us that we are awareness itself. And by definition, awareness is aware. Its function is to apprehend. It desires to know, to behold, to come into contact with, to touch. 
Do you feel how in this room right now, um, I'm talking to you folks on Zoom, in this room right now we can hear the wind in the background. I don't know that you can. But it's really windy today in, in Minneapolis. Can you feel how just hearing that, that's touch? Can you feel how some part of you is touching the wind? Because you can hear it. How the fact that you're aware of that and you can apprehend it means it's not separate from you. Like that's, can you feel it? That's contact. I mean, in a literal scientific sense, we can say, yeah, my eardrum is actually moving because of da-da-da. Yes, yes, of course, it's physical, true. But I'm talking about a larger sense. Just, can you feel that that's my contact with wind? My hearing is, is a way of touching it. I, you can almost feel it, can't you? We are awareness itself, and so we want to know everything, to touch everything. All senses are touch, including mind. I feel closer to Guy because I'm thinking about him. That's a way of touching apprehension. So ultimately, because this is Mahayana Buddhism, to come to know the other as oneself, so to actualize the dynamic functioning of luminous emptiness and to overcome the illusion of separation. Wow, that's a complicated sentence, a little pretentious actually. I see you, Mara. I see you, that idea of separate. Oh, right. I imagine that I'm separate from it, and then I can acquire, and then I can grab, and then I can own, and then it'll mean something about me. You can feel it, right? So we are invited to dig because we are consciousness itself. We are awareness itself. We are enlightenment. You've heard it a million times. If you've been hanging around weird Zen centers like this, which is you are Buddha, that's your nature. You can't increase it. You can't decrease it. You can't miss the mark. You can't increase the mark. We're going to do this thing anyway vitally important that we do, but it's not because we're scared of missing the mark of being Buddha. It's your nature. So we're invited to practice because we are practice. We're invited to dig because we are Buddha. Digging is life. It's life itself. So what would arise in the heart and in the mind of the archaeologist? They must dig with great respect. This was someone's home. This place I am digging mattered to someone, so it must matter to me too. This is a burial ground. The place I am digging is sacred. I wonder how my zazen would be different if at the beginning when I heard the three bells I thought, I'm about to do some digging and the place I'm digging is sacred. This is a really, really, really important place. This body, this heart, this karma, this samsara, this dukkha that I'm about to bear witness to. People lived and died here. This place mattered. It's connected to everything. I better dig with great care today. I better sit with great care today. You can feel the way I'm using the word care. Now, I want to make sure my mudra is thumb tip to thumb tip. That's lovely, too. I'm talking about the spirit in which anything that I discover will show itself and how I will meet it. It matters, right? I love to imagine that if I was an archaeologist and I really was digging 
you know, especially in the springtime earth, when it feels so fertile and it's offering itself, that I would be aware people lived and died here. This was somebody's home. They buried their relatives here. They buried their children here. They fought here. They worshipped here. They bought bell peppers here. I don't know. But something really important happened here, and I'm not separate from it. I refuse to be separate from it because I have the heart of an archaeologist. That's what my teacher taught me to do. I feel like in that way, as Zen students, we aren't different. We shouldn't be different. That's the spirit our teachers have taught us. They must dig with great care, pay attention, nice and easy, patience, look carefully at all of it. Is this really just another rock? Or is this petrified wood? This was her necklace, worn against her warm skin. This was his sword hilt, worn against his hip, thumping him as he walked, reminding him that it was there, making him feel safer in a world of uncertainty and fear. How important these objects must have been to them. My relationship with Guy's robe changed after he died because it was still downstairs in the changing room. Changed because of my heart. But he wore that. Isn't that interesting? So when I'm gone, which won't be long, I'll have a bunch of objects that are left behind. This is his shirt, this is his mala, this was the Stuff he put on his altar, there's that weird rock he found, there's his teacup with a crack in it, but he refused to get rid of it because he used to belong to his grandma. And there's the... Da, 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 da. Do you, have you experienced this kind of relationship with objects before where something just sort of glows from the inside because of your mind, because of the way your mind touches it with such care that it belonged to somebody that mattered to you? Or you right? we're, we're so carnal in this way, humans. We're so carnal, like, oh, he might have touched that. That was his robe. Those were her shoes. We do this as human beings. I don't know what that is. I, I'm not a psychologist. I've just been to way too many places that were like, oh, we have the relics. We have her finger bones. You know? We do this in Buddhism, too. Oh, there's his teeth are in that stupa, and the, and the left foot bone is in that stupa, and they're spread all over the world. This idea of physicality, that somehow we can be closer to something by touching an object that we imagine was once touched by them. Right? There's all sorts of layers to that, including goofy magical thinking. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the relationship of, through this I'm connected to everything. There isn't something that's left out of this moment. To me, I feel like that's an open door of invitation to every object in every moment at all times. It's not Katagiri Roshi's robe folded carefully in that trunk upstairs. It's the shirt you're wearing right now. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? Somebody else could look at that shirt later and go, she had her heart broken in this shirt. She was scared in this shirt. She was so excited to get that Danish in this shirt. She called her daughter in this shirt. She could feel the wind off the lake and she pulled it closer to herself. Can you kind of feel how that's a moment of like consciousness apprehending? 
the physicality of the universe going, oh my God, this is me. I recognize this is me. This is me in cloth form. This is me in wood form. This is me in Buddhist form. This is me in Christian form. This is me in light. This is me as, this is me. Can you kind of feel just a hint of that? The way that relationship starts? So I like to imagine, like archaeologists, that we sit knowing we have nothing to get. Just discoveries to be made, relationships to foster. As we're sitting here together in this, in this uh, physical space and in this virtual space, I invite you to notice what emotions arise in you. Emotions that arise in you to be known by you. When you hear each of these eight phrases, I'll remind you that these phrases will not create emotion in you because they do not have the power to do that. Basic Buddhism. Can't create an experience. But you will have an experience, big or small, because you are awareness. And so your job is to be present to what shows up in you. And to not imagine that it's about the phrases, or about me, or about my voice, or about this space. But instead, pay attention to what shows up in you. That's the archaeology. That's why Zen goes in and down, instead of up and out. Right? Notice what shows up in you. This is where they ate. This is where they slept. This is where they hid their gold. This is where they fought. This is where they died. This is where they buried their dead, some with honor, some in a heap face down. Those are our phrases. So I ask you, do you have places in you that need to be excavated? Buddha says an emphatic yes. He has been saying an emphatic yes for 2,500 years. There are places in you that need to be excavated. There are places in you that are light and spacious and luminous that you know well and have loved well, that you're in deep and loving relationship with. And there are also places in you where there is fighting, and there is darkness, and there are what we call poisons, greed, places of greed in you, places of hate in you, places of delusion in you. There are places inside the human heart where people are buried with great honor, and there are places inside each human heart where the bodies are in a heap, face down. I can say this with certainty because I'm a human being, and you're a human being, and so we share this. There are lots of parts of us we do not want to be in a relationship with, individually and collectively. It's not lost on me that if I go out digging and I find an archaeological artifact, a piece of pottery, I'm finding an individual's object 
and now I'm finding it, and because of the way I am finding it, and because of the heart of the finder, I'm going to put it someplace where it now becomes owned by everybody. The personal has now become universal. It used to belong to one person, now it belongs to all of us. If I don't, if I don't discover how to be in loving relationship with the pain and the cruelty that live inside of me, you'll be the ones who feel it. You'll know it. You'll be the ones who experience that karma because we're not separate beings. So I owe it to you, I owe it to all beings to go down in and go, let's find the wars. Let's find them. Let's find the wars right now and bring as much understanding, as much peace as I possibly can to those places. I have to. That's my responsibility. I feel as a human, I mean, I can add to that because I'm a Zen Buddhist, because I'm committed to nonviolence, because I'm wearing weird clothes. It's because I'm human, and I realize, oh my God, if I don't take care of it, you'll have to. If you don't take care of it, I'll have to. This is our project. This is the one great thing. We have to do this. This is a thing, right? Why did Putin do what he did? Because he hasn't figured it out yet. You're in pain. Can you be in loving relationship with that pain? No, I know you can't. I know you can't, and that's why you do what you do. And I understand it because I do it too. No different. No different. So Buddha says an emphatic yes to the hypothetical question that I am asking you today. Do you have places in you that need to be excavated? Of course you do. He insists that you are both the archaeologist and the landscape. Waiting to be known, understood, and brought into the light of awareness. He called this landscape karma and insisted that it could not only be known, but that through a care-filled relationship with it, it could be changed, healed, and influence the present, the future, and the past. Woohoo! That's my favorite part, is the good news. We can influence the past, the present, and the future by caring with things with great compassion and great love. Yes, meditation is sometimes relaxation. Sometimes we set the shovels and brushes aside and just appreciate the ground we are sitting on. It is lovely. But we don't need too much comfort to meet our need for comfort. We don't need very much. It's like food, we don't need that much. We don't need that much to meet our need for food. We just need a little bit. Comfort, I have a need for comfort. I have a need for safety. Yeah, meditation gets to show up that way. Please meet your need for that. But you don't need too much, because you're big. <laughs> All of you, you're big. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> That's my big noise. <clears throat> you're big. You're fine. You're okay. You're going to be comfortable all the time. You're fine. Right? Because too much comfy becomes lazy, and then it becomes avoidance, and then it becomes bypass, and now the whole, whole game is about trying to get away. Nope. Nope, the Buddhist meditation tradition fully and emphatically acknowledges that there is real work to be done in this suffering world, and it is inside the human heart, and it is our work to do. And meditation can be called excavation, looking down into insight, if we wish, and some of the places inside of us want it, need it, and crave it. Their voices cannot often be heard underneath the cacophony of sirens that warn us away. Do not dig. This is not your business. Warning, unstable earth. Uh, I'm laughing because that's what I hear at the beginning of every zazen. Wouldn't it just be easier to not do this? You know it would be nice. Anything other than this. 
We're not taught to be in loving relationship with our insides when we're kids, so we can discover it. That's why we come to Zen centers, and we sit with each other, treat each other so kindly. So, I'm going to skip the rest of that and just go to the end. <clears throat> I think I'm done. How we pay attention is everything. Thank you, Guy. How we dig is everything. If I do not share what I find, it is tantamount to looting. My Zen practice is a practice that belongs to everybody. It's your business. Your practice is my business. It's also nobody's business, and I appreciate that, not in separateness. But when our teachers say, we only sit for the benefit of all beings everywhere, what they mean is, we only sit for the benefit of all beings everywhere. And I know that that's frustrating to our linear minds and our tangible minds and our concrete minds want to say, I want to know what I did to help John Bruin today when I wasn't even in the same space with him and I was all the way across town and I just lit a candle and I sat for half an hour and faced the frickin' wall. How does that help John Bruin? Right? How does that help the lake? How does that help climate change? How does that help systemic racism? How does that help Tanya? How does that help? How does that help? How does it help? Can you feel it? <laughs> because how I pay attention is everything. And my attention, like yours, can be Kuan Yin and want to touch and know and include every feeling. And my attention and yours can be Manjushri and want to touch and know and include every truth. My attention, like yours, can be Buddha and do both naturally with no distinction between them. Anything seen deeply is holy. My mind can be a bridge. I can wonder with my heart. This must be how consciousness itself, how enlightenment itself expands and learns. I am curious. It says, I want to understand you. Enlightenment tells me I want to be you, to know the world as you. There are no non-spaces, there are no non-moments, there are no non-experiences, there are no non-objects, there are no non-people. Nothing is excluded from me. So we are already containing everything, all of us, and yet we still choose to desire to grow and to expand and to do the impossible which is Buddha's specialty, which is include more. <laughs> include more than everything. So, this morning with you I will vow to take my friend and my teacher guy's words to my heart and renew my commitment to continue. Thank you very much. And we have time, if people would like to, if there's anybody in this room who's an archaeologist, by chance, that would be lovely, um, or if anybody in this room has said Zazen, same thing, right? Um, yeah, anything you'd like to offer, uh, insights or experiences, that would be lovely. John. Thank you for your talk. <laughs> Throughout your talk, um, and it's kind of embodied in the line or your sentence, we practice because we are practiced. I kept thinking of my favorite 
line or teaching from the Christian contemplative movement of uh, living our life as a prayer. Oh, yeah. I think that it's a perfect overlap with all the, of the, the Zen uh, teachings and concepts that you're bringing up today. It's, it's such a great overlap of, of, the, of the line, live your life as a prayer. Yeah. I'm with you. Thank you. The mystics always get there, don't they? It doesn't matter where they start, they always get there. Like, oh, it's all a sacrament. You're like, yeah, of course it is. All right, that's good. Now I don't have to be so attached to how I got here. <laughs> hey, Katie. Hey. Good to see you. Um, it's nice to see you in person. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, in archaeology, sharing means you know, publishing papers, putting things in museums, showing things physically. When we share our Zen practice, should we be talking about it in words, or should we just be living it? Yes. <laughs> that was so easy. <laughs> Thank you for asking it that way. It was so easy. If you're ever sitting in this seat and somebody asks an either-or question, just say both, and then you're off the <laughs> quickest Zen. I, I'm being funny. Um, but I, I actually believe in both. I believe in both. I mean, I, our tradition emphasizes the latter, you know, a little more than the former. Like, yeah, talking about it, yeah, cool. I mean, talk about it if you want to. It's not quite as important as how you live. Um, I think both. I think both only because it's really cool to have people in your life, um, and some of us are fortunate to have this. Not all of us, but some of us are fortunate to have people in their life who are excited about something because we're excited about it. And we know that because we're excited about the thing they're excited about. I don't know. Do you guys know that feeling? You ever had that experience? Of when you like you really care about coming, like rushing into the room, go, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And you're like, what? What? Like, well, you're already excited. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I don't know. Like, did you get concert tickets, or did you find a baby bird, or did you get a Danish? I must be hungry. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm like, I'm excited because now you're excited. That kind of, oh wow, I went to the Zen Center today, and I had this beautiful sitting, and there was this thing in me, and I just didn't see it before, but then I saw it, and I held it so tenderly, and I'm so glad that I did this. And people are like, oh my God, Katie, this thing brings you so much joy. I'm so happy because you, I'm experiencing sympathetic joy. And then and I've labeled it, and I can turn it into a thing. Yeah, why not? Sure. Yeah. I, I know we get all the admonitions about, um, oh, I forget the wording of the, the precept, like, you know, you're not supposed to be proselytizing on street corners, come to MZMC and we're going to save you or any of that kind of, like selling it as, a, um, as an intoxicant. In, we'll not intoxicate with substances or doctrines. Um, it doesn't feel to me like that's the place in you that, <laughs> that we need to be worried about. Am I, am I in any way addressing your... Yeah, so, sometimes after a talk like this, I want to go on Facebook and tell everybody all the things I learned. But I can't without telling your entire talk. So then I think, well, how, how do I share what I learned in either a few words, or maybe I just need to live it? Yeah, I mean, again, both seem just fine. Yeah, why not? You know, what I, you know what I noticed um, increasingly the last, I don't know how many years? I don't know if this will make sense. What I notice is, oh, I just, like, there's that section in Joko's book that I read. And, oh, the way she said that made so much sense to me. I never quite got that teaching before, but I get it now. Or, oh, I was at the Zen Center. Ben just gave this great talk and this thing. And I this, this idea. I've never considered it before. Only Ben's brain would work that way. So he made an, a, an association or a metaphor or something. Wow. So I tell people about it. 
That's cool. It's like, oh, did you ever think blah, blah, blah? Wow, who said that? Oh, my friend Ben, you can go follow the link, right? What's been really fun for me the last years has been to notice what part of me is kind of on fire right now. Because sometimes it's just my brain's just been introduced to a new idea that it's never conceived of before. Like when you first hear about emptiness, I'm like, you can't quite find the beginning of the activity because the activity isn't separate or distinct, doesn't really have a beginning, and your brain just kind of goes, the world just got really weird. But then other times, the thing that the person said, there's another part of me that's on fire because of it. I mean on fire in a good way. Some part of me just goes, I, I can feel that. Like, I know that. I think a lot of the kind of discovery that we do in this tradition, again, I'm speaking for myself, but it seems like this, it seems like this happens with a lot of us, is somebody will say something from this seat or in the Zen book that you're reading or in the Dharma talk that you watch from San Francisco Zen Center or whatever, and you'll go, oh, I've always known that. That both those things happen at the same time where you go, I know that I've never made this connection in quite this way before, but some part of you goes, yep. And now that I know it, you could never talk me out of it. I know with absolute certainty what that is, and I have never not known it. I just didn't know that I knew it. And now I know it. So I think, depending on what part of me is getting excited or activated, really influences the kind of sharing that I do. Because someone will make me want to call, you know, my sister and go, like, you're not going to believe this. And other things I'll just sort of sit with and savor like it's a cup of tea and know what's going to show up in my life. Vivi no. has a question. Oh, um, hi! Hello. Hi. Hi. hi there. Uh, stop. stop. So, so um, um, when, when a connection is made, I felt the connection is burning. I feel that I should choose not to shut uh, and, and, so, uh, I just, I just think, think that, that guys, guys hope it's, it's a, a challenge. challenge. It's, it's a challenge. challenge. It's, it's, a big, it's, it's like, like, so, so if, if I don't what my experience um, this, this is, is what, what we my relation by being cut off from and feeling that, that I'm not in, in the world. world. And, and so, so somehow, somehow this talk morning is something that's, that's really important to me in my, in my life. And, and I, I think Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to say that the connection here has been spotty so that I only got about a third of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's not, <laughs> that's just the nature of the mercurial um, Zoom gods. But thank you. If I understand what you said, um, the, the relationship with what we find and the sharing has been really important to you at this point in your life. Is that right? I can see that she is nodding even though we can't see her. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and I'm also aware of the time. Thank you all. Um, I encourage you to stay um, if, 
if you feel safe in doing so, stay here in this space and talk to each other um, in the breakout groups on Zoom to continue to talk about um, what comes up for you. But I want to make sure we give the dawn time to do the announcements and stuff. Thanks.